Thank you. Pray for yourself this morning, no. <laughs> All right, children. <laughs> Let us pray. Good morning, Father. We gather in your house and thank you for your unbounded grace and blessings. Let us never forget that what we have and what we are is a gift from you. By the grace of God, we could have been born into much different circumstances. We must bless you today for being at the General Conference in St. Louis this last week. We know that your will was done. Prayerfully, we hope we can all unite again in your name so that we can bring more people to know you. We pray you will be with the Collins family as you took Nancy to her eternal home last week. She battled long and hard and meant so much to this class. Give comfort to her girls during this time. Others need your healing prayer and you know who they are. Today, Lord, we want you to be with Phil and let him know what he's meant to us as a teacher, a confidant, and most of all, a friend. He'll be missed, but our love goes with him. Our class will continue under strong leaders and teachers, and we always be with us. May we continue to love and support each other. We ask this in your holy name. Amen. Amen. Several people have asked me if this is my last Sunday. It's like, no, it's not. So if you didn't get the, you didn't get the memo, um, I'm teaching through the end of March. And then we have the party. And then there's apparently a party on the first <laughs> Sunday in April. I'll try to be here for that too. <laughs> so that's the schedule, uh, in case you didn't get it. Because we've got some, some chapters of Ephesians to get through here. So if you weren't here uh, last week, um, the baskets are moving back. Now they're on their way. If you weren't here last week, I've decided we're using this photograph, um, which was taken at the top of uh, Unaka Mountain about 18 months ago. Um, one starlit night while I was up there. Um, so that, that's a real photograph. I, I, I did take it myself. I had tripod for those of you who care about those kind of things. So that is me. Uh, it's not trick photography. It's just a, um, yeah. So, no, I took it by, I was up there by myself and, uh, and took that. And um, we're using that sort of as a kind of mental image for last week because 
the opening chapter of Ephesians is just overwhelming. After this opening sentence of greeting, uh, Paul has two enormous sentences that take up the whole chapter. Right? The first one is about all the ways that God has blessed us in Jesus Christ. And it's, it's incredible. It's like ten verses. And it's all one sentence in Greek. Um, and then he takes a breath and offers another sentence that's about how the church itself, and this is a circular letter that Paul is sending that goes to the Ephesians, but not just to them, but it's, it's, a, it's a prayer for them uh, and for their being blessed, uh, for having been blessed by God. And so we said last week that grammar lesson, we've got our teachers coming in, teacher coming in. The first, the first three, the first three chapters of Ephesians, the first half, okay, um, are really what we could call Paul speaking in the indicative. Remember your grammar? The indicative, that's when you're stating what, what just is. And something's in the indicative case. So Paul's in the opening three chapters is just announcing, and he's just over the top. He's announcing what is the case? What has God done? And the first chapter was about all the ways in which God has blessed us. We didn't do anything. He's just telling us. Now there are, in the last three chapters, are going to be in the imperative case. Right? The imperative is when you give a command or instruction to do something. Right? Um, and the last three chapters will follow that and flow from that. But I want to keep this picture up here all these six weeks so that we can be reminded that all of this flows from this overwhelming wonder and gratitude that Paul feels at what God has done. So even when Paul gets to giving instructions, it's all in light of what God has done. And so I want us to sort of just kind of visually remember, I mean, Paul is, the reason I, last week I was just talking about all Paul can do is sort of like do this. I mean, the first chapter is just a verbal this, right? He just keeps just piling up all these words in chapter one about the glorious blessings that we have received in Christ. Now, the whole book of Ephesians um, is in some ways um, what we're going to call today, we'll call it a grace and peace envelope. All right. Uh, this letter of the Ephesians is sort of tucked inside what I'm going to call the grace and peace envelope. If you go back to the opening verses, uh, he's got his normal greeting uh, where he says, Grace to you and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And when we get to the very last verses, and we know actually this time when that's going to be, right? It's not mysterious when the series is going to end. At the end of March, we get to the very end of Ephesians, and the last words he says are, Peace 
be to the whole community and love with faith from God the Father, our Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all who have an undying love for our Lord Jesus Christ. So he starts with grace and peace and ends with peace and grace. And the whole letter inside is about that. And chapter 2, particularly. So chapter 2, which we're focusing on today, is going to start, the first half is about grace. And the second half is about peace. So there you have your outline. So if you remember nothing else, just remember grace and peace. And you've got it. Okay? Now, you can go back to sleep now. <laughs> So let's start where, at the beginning here of chapter 2. We're going to start uh, with the first three verses, which again, in the Greek, are just one sentence. And it's a kind of convoluted sentence. And we'll find, even though your English text doesn't show this, um, Paul interrupts his sentence at verse 4. So he's got a line of thought that in the first three, and then he just leaves off in the middle of the sentence and goes to verse four, even though verse three in your text has a period. He has no period here. He's just, he stops his thought and then says, but. Okay? So there you go. Let's see what he says. It's pretty dark, but he's trying to tell the truth. He says you, and here he's talking primarily to the Gentiles. <coughs> You were dead through the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Your translation may say lived. In which you once lived or walked, following the course of this world, following the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work among those who are disobedient. All of us once lived among them, now he's including the Jewish audience, right? Uh, all of us, right? It was, began, you. Now it's like, okay. You can imagine the Jewish audience at the first sentence saying, Amen, brother. Those Gentiles, those sinners. Yeah, you tell them, they were dead. But then it says, all of us were once lived among them in the passions of our flesh, following the desires of flesh and senses. And we were, all of us, by nature, children of wrath, like everyone else, but God. That's where he leaves off. Sorry. So he just puts it out there. All of us, Jew and Gentile alike, were dead in our trespasses and our sins, held captive by the prince of the air. This is a poetic allusion uh, to, the, to Satan, the accuser, right? But God, right? So he just stops in the middle of the sentence. But God, but God, who is rich and mercy, out of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead through our trespasses, made us, now he's talking all of us, Jews and Gentiles alike, made us, and now he's going to list three things that 
Jesus has done to us together. And again, in your English translation, it might say together once, but he actually uses three verbs that are compound verbs, each of which has the word together in it. So I'm going to put it in there just so we don't miss it because he's talking about what he's doing, what Jesus has done together with Jews and Gentiles alike. So, but God who is rich in mercy out of great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead through our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. Then he has an aside. By grace you have been saved and raised us up together with him and seated us together with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not the result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are what he has made us, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand to be our way of life. So that's the grace part. So let's, again, that's all just pretty much one sentence. He just, he just can't help himself. He is so overwhelmed with this reality and whereas the opening chapter was addressed, again, in this circular letter to all who would hear, now he's, in chapter 2, going to be talking about what this God has done in Jesus Christ to bring Jew and Gentile together, something that no one had ever seen. Uh, it's hard for us to imagine what this change was. Right? Um, we don't have anything quite like it. Um, but this enormous and wondrous thing that God has done in Jesus, he begins by using these words about together. That yes, this was our plight. We were dead in our sins. Helpless to do anything about it. And yet, what has he done? He's made us alive together with Christ. Notice he says, like, right now. He's, he doesn't say, someday we'll be alive together with Christ. He says, in Jesus' death and resurrection, God has made us together alive with Christ and raised us up with him and seated us together in the heavenly places in Jesus Christ. So here's, here's what Paul's thinking. You know, back when we were doing the Apostles' Creed, mm, yes, those many, many months we were sojourning in the Apostles' Creed, we talked about that we don't talk much about the ascension. You know, we talk a lot about the 
death and burial and resurrection of Jesus. We talk little about the ascension, but one of the important doctrinal points about the ascension is that Jesus continues to bear his humanity at the right hand of God. Whatever that means, Jesus didn't just come and pretend to be a human being for 30-some years and then slough off his humanity like a snake sloughs off its skin and go back to being God. No, Jesus is forever united. God is forever united. So when Jesus rises to the right hand of God, humanity is drawn up into the life of God. Let your, let your head get around that just a little bit. Humanity is now at the center of the Godhead. So when Paul says that we have been raised with Christ and are now in Christ, Jesus bears our humanity. Jesus bears our humanity. And so one of Paul's favorite phrases that you can miss because who besides English teachers can care about prepositions, right? He loves the phrase, in Christ. In Christ. For Paul, that's everything. That we are in Christ. Which means wherever Christ is, we are. Okay? Wherever Christ is, we are. And here he says, we have been raised together with Christ, made alive together with Christ, and seated with him together in the heavenly places. That's extraordinary. That's an extraordinary claim. Okay? And for Paul, that changes everything. If you realize that if God has, if all of us are in some sense, all of us who God has called and who, who, who serve this Savior, who claim by grace, through faith, that, that Jesus is the one promised of God, then we by God's grace, are in Christ together. It's not like I'm in Christ and you just happen to be there too, but we have different zip codes. <laughs> so I'm glad you're there too, but I don't ever have to see you. No, three times he uses a compound word with the prefix together. We are raised together. We've been made alive together. We sit the right hand of God together in the heavenly places. Now. Okay. As, because the church is called to be a foretaste, an anticipation of what God is going to do with all of creation at the end. So the church is called to live now. God's future hope. The hope has broken in in Jesus and in the church, which is the body of Christ. Now, today, when someone puts a piece of bread into your hands on the first Sunday of the month and says, the body of Christ, maybe you'll hear it a little differently because 
It means the body of Jesus. It means the people sitting around you. Right? It means the body of Jesus on the cross. It means the body that we all have been brought into. This is what Paul's announcing as the case in the indicative mood. This is the case. This is what God has done. You need to know this, Paul says. You need to know this because this changes everything. What God has done. And this is by grace. Not by works, lest anyone should boast, he says. Twice. This is by grace. This is God's gift. You and I have done nothing to earn this. Nothing. Zero. Nada. Nothing. Okay? Not. God did 99% of it. We kicked in the other 1%. We did nothing. And he's telling both people this, Jew and Gentile. Would have been easy for the Jews to, to think, well, we were the chosen people of God. Might have been easy for the Gentiles to think, well, we know how that turned out. Um, but the Gentiles, Paul says elsewhere, of course, have been grafted in to Israel. Paul says very clearly in Romans. Right? And so the Gentiles are dependent upon the chosen people who were never chosen for their own sake. Israel was never chosen for its own sake, but was chosen for mission. So even though this is an extraordinary good news, and in some ways surprising, it's the fulfillment of what the prophet said. And Isaiah talks about that there will come a time when all the nations of the world will come to Mount Zion, right? Come to Jerusalem and will and will come and bring their glory in. Right? And so this is what's happening. This is what's begun. Is that God's chosen people are being used by God, by God's grace, to do what God's people have always been called to do, whether it was Israel or the church. And that is, be a people who by their very life together are an anticipation, are a foretaste of what God desires for all of creation, not just Israel, not just the church. So we are a living, breathing, embodied sign of what God wants for all. That's who we're called to be. That's our mission. That's why the church matters. And the, God can do that. And here's the other good news. God can do that even in our brokenness. Even in my brokenness, your brokenness, even in the church's brokenness. There's nothing you can read in Scripture from Genesis to Revelation that says that God is waiting for you to get your act together for me to get our act together, for Israel to get its act together, or for the church to get its act together before God can use it. There's nothing there that would give you that impression. That's really good news. Because if I thought I had to get my act completely together, 
I thought you had to get your act together, which seems maybe just as unlikely as me getting mine together. That the United Methodist Church had to get its act completely together. That the church around the world had to get its act completely together before God can use it. I would just despair. Nothing in Scripture suggests that. This is God's grace, God's ability. God seems to revel in using broken people. Not Paul's really careful about this like in other places where that doesn't give us an excuse not to live into our calling as fully as we can by God's grace. But we're not always going to get it right. Yeah, if you're like me, I can't point to one day in my life when I've got it right. And so, but I hope and pray that in some way God can even use my inadequacies for God's glory. And Paul says that, you know, we have to actually glory in our weakness. Because in our weakness, God is strong and bears witness to who God is. And so, if you're like me, I want, I want to minister out of my strength, not my weakness. Um, but that doesn't always, not always the case. Uh, God often chooses to use us uh, in our weakness. So Paul announces what is the case. And now he's going to say a couple other things about what are the case in the second half of chapter 2. So let's look at that. Now he's going to call them to remember. And this is the part about peace. And here, just ask you to try to remember when the scripture talks about peace, it's not talking about sort of inner peace, peace of mind, uh, serenity, which is what we often associate with peace. Um, the Hebrew notion of peace, of shalom, has to do with completeness and wholeness. Okay? Um, we often think of peace being the absence of conflict. Um, but that's, a, that's an, as we've noted in here before, that's, that's a negative way of defining peace. In other words, it's the absence of something. Peace is not having conflict. But the Hebrew notion is not a negative notion, a negative definition. It's a positive definition. It's the presence of wholeness and completeness. Okay, it's not the absence of conflict. Because you can have the absence of conflict and still not have shalom. Right? Most of you know this. Um, you can you not have any open conflict in your family, but it's not shalom. It's not wholeness. It's not completeness. It's called a ceasefire. Right? Um, no open conflict? No, it's all gone underground. It's not shalom. It's not wholeness. It's not completeness. So... The biblical notion of peace is not the, con the absence of conflict. It's about the presence of human flourishing and completeness and wholeness. And Paul's going to remind us that God in Christ is working peace, is working wholeness. And the sign of that in his day is bringing Jew and Gentile together. Two that have been, for as long as anyone can remember, have been separate, apart, incredible hostility between them, enormous animosity between them, that in Christ, God has worked peace, brought them together, made them one, made them whole, made them complete in each other in Christ. 
all Paul can do is this. Like, really? Are you kidding me? So he says, remember, this is verse 11. So then remember that at one time you Gentiles by birth called the uncircumcision by those who are called the circumcision, a physical circumcision made in the flesh by human hands, remember that you were at that time without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. And so we're just saying, remember Gentiles, there was a time when you were cut off from the promise. So it seemed, even though again, a careful reading of the prophets said, that Israel's choosing was, was ultimately going to reach you as well. But your experience was not that. Your experience was that you were alienated from the common wealth of Israel and from its promises. And you were without hope and without God, it even says. But verse 13, here we go again. But now, right? Before it was, but God. Now it's, but now. But now what? But now in Christ Jesus. There it is again. In Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he is our peace. In his flesh, he has made both groups into one and has broken down the dividing wall. That is the hostility between us. Right? He's taken two and made it one. He has abolished the law with its commandments and ordinances that he might create in himself. Hear that? That Jesus, he, he abolished the law and the commandments, so that in himself he might create one new humanity in place of the two, thus making peace and might reconcile both groups to God in one body through the cross, thus putting to death that hostility through it. What can you say other than just throw your hands in the air? Right? Paul no doubt has in mind here, he talks, of, he uses this image of the wall, right? Broken down the dividing wall. I mean, it's true that just metaphorically there was this, like a wall. You know what it's like to have a wall between you and another person. All of us have experienced that at least once in our life, I feel sure. There was no literal wall there, but yes, there was a wall. Right? But you recall in the temple there was a literal wall. Right? You remember the outside, the, the furthest courts of the temple was the courts of the Gentiles. That was the outermost court. That's the place the Gentiles could go. And it was to remind everyone that in some way, this was the God of the universe. But there were warning signs at that wall that said, if you were a Gentile and you crossed that wall, it was a capital offense. 
And it was one of the only things the Romans gave the Jews permission to execute apart from their power. If you were a Gentile that crossed out of the court of the Gentiles into one of the inner courts, there was a literal wall, okay? A literal wall. And Paul, later in his ministry, um, he almost gets killed for this because he takes some former Gentiles who are proselytes into the inner courts and no one else knows that they're proselytes. They just look like Gentiles. So they're ready to drag Paul and his friends out and kill him for doing precisely this. Paul here says that, no, here's what's happened. And again, this is in the indicative. This is what God has done. God has broken down the dividing wall between Jew and Gentile, and out of two created one new humanity. Just one. There's just one humanity. Now, it seemed like there were two before. But now there's one new humanity. So what does he say? So he came, Jesus came, and proclaimed peace to you who were far off, and peace to those who were near. For through him, both of us, Jew and Gentile, have access in one spirit to the Father. How does Paul know this? His own ministry, right? How many times did Paul find that the Spirit of God was ahead of his work being poured out on the Gentiles? Right? And so it's the Spirit, it's the Spirit's presence that Paul cannot deny. So then, verse 19, you are no longer, he's talking to the Gentiles, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are citizens with the saints and also members of the household of God. And here he's going to just sort of mix metaphors. I mean, this will drive an English teacher crazy. But again, he's just overwhelmed here. You are mem also members of the household of God, built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself, as the cornerstone or keystone, depending on which architectural image you want. In him, there it is again, in him, the whole structure is joined together or fitted together and grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are built together in the spirit into a dwelling place for God. So, God has created one new humanity. And in doing that, by pouring out the Spirit upon Jew and Gentile alike, is making us us, making us into a temple, not made by stones, but of flesh, with Jesus Christ as the cornerstone or the capstone, both images are possible here. <laughs> and we are being built up into that temple, into a habitation, a dwelling place of God. 
So the Gentiles weren't allowed very far into the temple. But the wonder that has Paul's attention this week is that God has taken Jew and Gentile, people who had millennia of animosity and hostility built up, and out of two created one new humanity. And in doing so, is making us, all of us, Jew and Gentile alike, as the body of Christ, as the church, as the household of God, as the people of God, a dwelling place for God, God's habitation. We are, again, in some imperfect way, God's presence in the world. This is why we care about the body of Christ. Because the Spirit working in us is intended to be a powerful presence, God's temple, if you will, in the world presently. That's probably not what most of us think when we get in our cars on Sunday morning and think we're driving to Muncie. Like, what are we doing when we're gathering there? You know, our, our vision is pretty puny, mine included, right? Paul wants you to catch a vision of what God is doing through even a broken church. I know a lot of this sounds so idealistic, and you're thinking, what church is Paul talking about? Well, unless you've read the New Testament, Paul's really clear what church he's talking about. All of his letters are written to churches that are deeply troubled. <laughs> this is one of the few that doesn't have them at the foreground. And usually, the trouble is between Jew and Gentile. Because look, they didn't know how to live together. They'd never seen it done. And so, of course it was hard. And so Paul's, Paul's clear throughout the letter that both these things are true. That God has done this. That God has made us one. And yet, we are not fully living into that oneness yet. Both things are true. And in fact, the imperative, in one way that people often talk about Paul's style of writing, of his imperative, it's almost as in most of Paul's letters, more times than not, he's saying, hey, church, would you please become what God has already made you? You're thinking, mm, that sounds a little strange. But that's what he's saying. God has made you this. So start acting like it. God has made you one. He said, God has broken down the dividing wall. This is not a call for the Jews and Gentiles to run to Jerusalem and tear down the wall. Say, look, God's done that. Okay? Wall's gone. God's created in Christ one new humanity. Can you see it? Can you glimpse it? Can you get even a little taste of it this morning? That's what he's asking. Can you see this glorious thing that God has done? Or is all you can see division and brokenness? That's the easy part to see. Right? Um, I know my own brokenness, and I know the brokenness of some people around me. Um, but occasionally we get glimpses of what God has called us to be. 
And sometimes, particularly after the fact, we catch a glimpse of something that we wished we had seen earlier. And one of the things I was thinking about this week, a lot of you, because you're educated people and uh, history buffs and all kinds of things, a lot of you will remember, uh, I was thinking about that uh, Ken Burns series on the Civil War. There's lots of powerful parts in there. Um, but the part that I was reminded of and I went looking forward to, to, to read you a part of is the, the little section he has on, in there on the, the 50th reunion in 1913, the sort of 50th celebration, so to speak, or commemoration of the Battle of Gettysburg. Um, which, as you remember, was 1863. So 1913, right on the brink of the First World War, 50,000 former Civil War soldiers, both Confederate and Union, met at Gettysburg to remember the Battle of Gettysburg. 50,000 of them. Think about that. Which is about the number who died at Gettysburg in three days. Get your head around that, right? We lost roughly 58,000 in the Vietnam War, and that includes people from 20 years, okay? Three days, 50,000 people slaughtered, right? And so they came back uh, 50 years later, 50,000 people who had fought in that war. And one of the things they had planned, were gonna do was going to reenact Pickens, Pickett's Charge. Do you remember this section? Those of you who have seen it, some of you are shaking your head yes. It's extraordinary. And I, I can't describe it, I have to read it, because it was in, there apparently, although he's got some old rickety uh, jittery footage, uh, of the commemoration. He doesn't have any footage of this particular moment. So someone who was there um, and wrote about it, here, here's what describes happens. And I'm just going to read it because I can't describe it. The old Union soldiers took their places among the rocks on Seminary Ridge. The old Confederate soldiers took theirs on the farmland below, and after a while the Confederates started to move forward across the broad, flat field where half a century earlier so many of them had died. We could see not rifles and bayonets, but canes and crutches as they made their slow advance towards the ridge, with the more able-bodied ones helping the disabled ones to maintain their place in the ranks. As the Confederate troops got near the Union line, they broke into one long, defiant rebel yell. And then something remarkable took place. A moan, a sigh, a gigantic gasp of disbelief rose from the men on Seminary Ridge. Then at that point, unable to restrain themselves, the Yankees burst from behind the stone wall and flung themselves upon their former enemies. Only this time, unlike 50 years earlier, they did not do battle with them. Instead, they threw their arms around them, 
some in blue uniforms and some in gray, the old men embraced one another and wept. And wept. Because maybe for the first time they saw something they hadn't seen. Right? All they saw was division. All they saw were their enemies before. Now they saw something different 50 years later. And so as we enter Lent this week, uh, my prayer for us is that we be given eyes to see the reality that Paul is painting here in this beautiful book of what God has done. That God has in Christ broken down the dividing wall. The dividing wall of hostility and division. And out of however huma different humanities you think there are, <laughs> created one new humanity. And Paul will have much to say about what it means to live into that. But for now, at the beginning of Lent, just see if you can get your head around what God has done. And pray that you be given eyes, that I be given eyes to see what is the case. That you and I together are in Christ Jesus. And there's a glory, there's a brilliance to that. And the other thing I was thinking about this week was uh, I was watching a video on um, restoration of old paintings. Some of you here know exactly what I'm talking about because you know a lot about art. Um, but if, you ever, if you've ever seen before and after pictures of paintings restored, it's extraordinary the, the difference, how much gunk, right, over years accumulates on a painting. Um, and that one verse in here, in chapter 2, where it says, it, it's, it variously translates that we are God's work, or we are God's workmanship. Um, the, the, the verse there, the, the, the word there in Greek, can, can really be like work of art. Right? We are, and we together, it's not just like, I'm a work of art. Like people say, yeah, he's a, he's a piece of, yeah, he's a work all right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But we together are God's masterpiece. But most days we don't look like it. We've just been covered over with that. But as we come to Lent, part of what we're doing is trying to remind ourselves for God to renew us, restore us, refresh us, make us alive again, make us shine again as be the witness you've called us to be in the world, a little more closely to what you've made us to be. So may this vision that Paul has of what God is doing in the church, in Christ, uh, on this day, when we may have our doubts about what God is doing in us, in Christ, in the church, may our hope be in God. May our faith be in God's grace and God's work. Let's pray.
Gracious God, we give you thanks for what you have done in Christ. We confess that it sounds almost too good to be true. Forgive us when we have failed to have eyes to see ourselves, our neighbors, your church with the eyes that you see it. Forgive us for only seeing our own shortcomings, the shortcomings of our neighbors, the shortcomings of your church. We pray that you would continue by your grace to be at work in us and in your church around the world and pray that you might continue to do your work in us and through us to your glory. We pray through Christ. Amen. Bill, what um, interpretation are you teaching from? I am using most of the